Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, talking about the characteristics God wants us to have as disciples. What does a disciple look like? And we've talked about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We talked about humility. Last week, we talked about generosity. All these qualities that most of us don't possess by nature. Qualities that we see very rarely in the world. And yet, if you're a follower of Christ, they ought to be qualities that you see in you. And growing ever more intense, ever more dominant over the parts of yourself that aren't Christ-like. And today, we're going to look at the last one, and that one is wisdom. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever played a game called Life? Yeah, a bunch of you. Life, the game of life, is actually one of the oldest board games in America. It was, it was started, it was invented in 1860 by a guy you may have heard of. His name was Milton Bradley. Um, it was actually the first board game Milton Bradley ever made. He went on to make quite a few others. But when it was first invented in 1860, it was a much more religious time, of course. And so the point of the game was to, was to inculcate moral truths in the lives and the hearts of those who played it. And so every choice you would make, do I get married? Do I go to college? Which career do I choose? How many kids do I have? How do I spend my money? All your choices in the game, uh, you were you were rewarded for making good choices, for making moral choices. Now, luck had something to do with it too. But Bradley, actually, his, his original game featured for the, for the playing piece, it was a six-sided top. I, I've never seen one. I don't even know how to picture that. But that was because back then, dice were seen as gambling. So, you know, you couldn't do that. So it was a very different time. And the game sort of went out of favor after a while. In 1960, they revived it. 100th anniversary of the game of life. They created a new version, and they've been updating it every few years ever since. Now, I was reading this on an online uh, journal that talks about board games. And it was talking about the game of life. It said, if you buy a copy of life, In the time since 1960, the more recent it is, the more gentle the game will be. In other words, the less severe the consequences of bad decisions are in the game. And this is the direct quote from the website. It said, the 1960 original game can be quite brutal if the players choose to act on all the options made available to them. I love that quote because I'm like, are you talking about the game of life or are you talking about life, period? Because in life, period, we're all playing that game. Boy, the consequences of our decisions can be absolutely brutal. If we just do whatever we want to do, my goodness. I, I know some of you have been here before um, where you've, you found this person that you thought, I this is the greatest person I've ever met. They're, they're so attractive. They're so intelligent. They're so funny. I, I just have to be with them. And then a year later, you're like, oh, my goodness, why did I ever let this person into my life? They're an emissary straight from hell. They're destroying everything that's precious about me. Or, or maybe, maybe you, you saw something and you said, I must have that. That is, that is what will complete my life. Now, I don't really have the money for it, but that's okay. This is America. There's credit, right? And then a year later, you're like, why did I waste my money on that thing? Now I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm in debt that I can't get out of. You know, this very afternoon, some of us could make decisions that we regret the rest of our lives. Somebody right here may be saying to themselves, today, I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to put my foot down with her. And you go home and you put your foot down and you, you look back and you think, why did I say those awful things? Why was I so stubborn about such a minor event? I mean, after the first service, speak of bad decisions, after the first service, a woman in the first service who I know well came up to me and she said, 
My earliest memory as a tiny little toddler is that I was playing the game of life and shoved one of those pieces up my nose. You know how little kids do? And they had to take her to the doctor and pull it out with tweezers. It was like horrible. You know, we make terrible decisions sometimes. On the other hand, I bet some of you can look back and think, there was this time when I chose this decision and it changed my life for good. It changed my life for the better. I'm so glad. I'm so glad I married this person. I'm so glad I chose this career. I'm so glad I walked away from this group of friends. I'm so glad. Life is a series of decisions. And wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be so wonderful if you could press some kind of button or or take some kind of online course and suddenly you'd be able to make all good decisions? Wouldn't it be great to be good at life? Not the board game, I mean the actual event of life. Well, you can be. You can be, actually. In the book of 1 Kings, there's a story of a young man named Solomon. You may have heard of him, too. His dad was King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. And Solomon took over for this fantastic king. And you know how it is. You've seen it in real life. If like a, a successful football coach retires and he's won several championships, the next guy who comes along is really, he, the bar is set high. It's hard for him to follow. That's true in churches. If, you, if you're a pastor and you follow a pastor who's been there for 20 or more years and is beloved, that next guy usually doesn't last very long. Think about being the king of a nation and your dad was the greatest king ever. And here's Solomon who may have, who may have been only a teenager when he took the throne. And something happened, something unexpected. God came and revealed himself to Solomon and said, I'm the Lord God of your father. What could you you ask of me? What do you need? This is a dream scenario. Most of us would say, well, how about some money? How about some power? How about some long life? How about destroying my enemies? Solomon, though, said, Lord, if there's only one thing I can ask, it is this. I'm just a young boy And your people are many, and I need wisdom. I need a wise and discerning heart so I can lead them well. And God was so pleased with his request, he said, you got it. And that's a direct quote from 1 Kings. You got it. And and Solomon became the wisest man of his time. And fantastic things happened in his reign. And as part of his wisdom, he wrote down this book we're looking at today, the book of Proverbs. It's basically a collection of the wisdom that Solomon learned down through the, through the years. This is the most practical book in the Bible, the most practical book you'll ever read. It talks about how to manage your money. It talks about how to have a good marriage, how to raise kids, how to manage your temper and your, your emotions, how to be a good person, how to have a good relationship with God, how to live out the purpose for which you were created. But the first nine chapters, if you ever read Proverbs, the first nine chapters don't have anything to do with all that other stuff that I just mentioned. The first nine chapters are devoted to one topic and one topic only. It's like a broken record that keeps spinning the same tune. It simply says, get wisdom. Whatever you do, if if there's one thing you can pursue in life, it's chase after wisdom. Become the wisest person you possibly can be. This is the pursuit of life. In fact, I want to show you in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, before we get into our text, it says this, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life. To those who embrace her, those who lay hold of her 
will be blessed. And some of you ladies have just noticed that Solomon pictures wisdom as a woman, right? And you're like, of course, <laughs> naturally. What, is she going to be a man? But Solomon says this is, this is the highest thing to attain to, is to chase after the wisdom of God and to know how to be good at life. You'll never regret your effort to become wise. So how do we do that? How do we become wise people? Because wisdom is not the same as knowledge. Knowledge you can attain through reading books, through attending classes, through studying various ways. I've heard it said that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad, right? Wisdom is knowing how to make good choices. And you can't learn that in a class. How do we learn it? By the way, let me just say this, two things. Some of us are of advanced age, and we say, well, I'm wise because I've lived a long time. I know a few things. And maybe that's true. You can certainly learn a lot through the course of life if you're humble enough, but a whole lot of us go through life, and we're not humble. We're prideful. We're pig-headed, and we make bad decisions, and we refuse to admit they're bad decisions. And guess what? When we get older, what are we? We're old fools. And I hope that's not true of you, but it could be. So don't think that just because you've got gray hair or no hair at all that you're wise. On the other hand, some of you in this room are very, very young, and I remember being your age, and I remember all the decisions that I had ahead of me. And let me just say to you, if you're, if you're young and you know you're young, man, chase wisdom now. I, I know that the world tells you and your heart tells you, oh, yeah, you'll figure it out. Just listen to your heart. Baloney. Your heart will steer you wrong. Your heart is deceitful. Chase after wisdom now before you make those big decisions that you have to regret, that you have to go back on and say, well, let's see if we can pick up the pieces. So how do we find wisdom? Four steps. Look at chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, one of my favorite scriptures. Many of you know this by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. If you're not good at memorizing scripture, memorize this one anyway, because this is a key passage of scripture. So what does it say to us? How do we get wisdom? Four things. I'm going to go through this quickly. Number one, admit your wisdom isn't enough. Admit your wisdom isn't enough. That second clause we read, lean not on your own understanding. That's corroborated by several things in Scripture, but especially in Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, to a man but its end is the way of death. And Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And again, ladies, some of you are like, Hey, Solomon knew my husband, apparently. But this is not when it says a man, it's not talking about that guy who sits on your couch with the remote control gripped as tightly as possible. It's talking about the word man in a, in a general sense, like human, men and women make bad decisions. Men and women do the wrong thing. Men and women become fools. There's no greater insult in scripture than a fool because the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. We have to admit, Lord, I need you. I am, I am making terrible choices. You're going you're gonna to think this is awful, but this morning when I was praying for you today, one of the things I prayed was that God would make you and me aware of bad decisions we've made in the past. And I know you want to forget those things. You want to leave that stuff behind. But I was hoping that all of us would take some time to just go, yeah, 
I wish I had a do-over on that one. You know, I followed my heart. I did what seemed right. I, I did what the crowd was doing. I did what my friends said to do. I, I just wish I could do that again and make a different choice. We have to confess before God. We'll never be wise unless we confess before God and say, my way is not working. I may be smart in some things, but I make some bad decisions on my own. There was a, an article I read online years ago, and I looked back for it uh, uh, this past weekend or this past week, couldn't find it. I either dreamed it or they've taken it off the internet, but it was about these engineers in California. I think it was San Diego who had invented this system called super cruise control. And they said, we have the technology. We could do this now. You can implant these sensors in a freeway. And so every few feet, there will be one of these sensors implanted. And, and it means that if you have the right kind of car, um, when you get on that freeway, the, the sensors will communicate with the car and essentially they will take over the car steering and, and acceleration, braking the whole nine yards and will get you to your destination, to the exit that you pre-program. And while you're on that freeway, you can sit back and relax. You can read, you can apply makeup or shave, you can text message, you can eat, you can call people on the phone. And you, meanwhile, you'll be driving at, at high speeds, closely spaced with other cars. It'll eliminate uh, accidents. It'll eliminate uh, traffic tie-ups. Everything will be great. The problem is, number one, it costs a lot. But number two, people don't want to give up control. I don't want some, some egghead downtown deciding how fast I can go. I don't want to put my hands, my life, in the hands of someone I can't see. And that's our problem when it comes to wisdom too. We just don't want to let go. We don't want to admit, I can't do this on my own. But it's time. Can't we all see that? Can't we all see how badly we mess up when we do things our own way? Can't we all list examples? I'm not going to make you stand up and speak it out loud, but you could. Second thing, get rid of what stands in the way. First, confess that we need help. But secondly, get specific. What areas of your life are not where they ought to be? He, he begins with the words, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And the Hebrews were like us in this way. They both used the term heart, not to refer just to that organ that pumps blood inside our bodies, but to talk about the will, to talk about the emotions, the desires, the things that drive us and motivate us. And, you know, we have songs that talk about our heart. One of the, there's, there's an old one, I left my heart in San Francisco. Y'all have heard that one, right? You familiar with this? Well, a lot of us have given our souls to God, but we left our hearts in the world, or at least a portion of our hearts. And most of us could say, yeah, I, I trust in God. I know he, he's the only one who can save me through the blood of Christ. I am his, and I know I'm going to heaven when I die because of him. And I go to church because I know I need him, but there's this part of my heart that I haven't given to him. And maybe, maybe it's the way you speak. You like being able to say whatever's on your mind. You don't want God to control that. Or maybe it's the way you spend your money and, and you, you want to be able to decide how you, how you spend your resources. Or maybe it's your sexuality and you want to make your own choices on that and follow your desires instead of you know, what you see as the repressive norms of Christianity. Or maybe it's your, your anger, your emotions, and you feel like, I've got to have this, this type A personality, otherwise people won't respect me. I don't know. There's all kinds of things. Uh, the, the way you speak, the, the kinds of thoughts you think, maybe 
There's all kinds of parts of your life you could be holding back from God, but we all struggle in this way. Let me just tell you a story about that. Several years ago, we have this sweet little mutt that we adopted from the SPCA. Gracie is her name. Um, and several years ago, we let her out right before bedtime. This is our routine. Let her out in the backyard. Let her do her business. She comes back in. She goes to bed. Well, she came back in, and she had been skunked. I mean, it, it you know, direct hit. And, and so, of course, we make the late night run to get a bunch of tomato juice and vinegar and all kinds of stuff. And she hates baths, and she really hated that one. But, and even afterwards, you can still smell it for a while. Well, she's just getting over that, and a couple weeks later, boom, it gets her again. So we knew two things. We knew, number one, our dog smells terrible. But number two, that skunk is on our property. It must consider our place its home. And we had a bunch of uh, you know, bushy shrubbery, and so we're like, he's in there somewhere. Now, my dad, my parents live where I grew up, out in the country. My dad gave me uh, or loaned me a skunk trap that he had. So I put that out there and waited. A couple of days later, I'm, I'm out with one of my friends having coffee, and my wife texts me and says, you got it. Well, I got what? Well, you got the skunk. Now, I have to confess to you, I hadn't planned that far. I, I didn't really know what is step two once the skunk is caught. Now, I knew how we handled it out in the country, right? You know, it's just boom, and it's over. You get a safe distance and, you know, take them out. But you can't do that in the city. Conroe, you can't do that in the city, okay? <laughs> right? You, you know that, right? I mean, even if I could get away with it legally, my wife and my daughter would never speak to me again. So I Googled skunk removal. And I found there are lots and lots of people in the Houston area who are quite willing to come remove a skunk from your property for several hundred dollars. And I found one who would do it for 40, and I'm like, sold. <laughs> And they came out, and I watched them. I was at a safe distance. I watched them as they very carefully walked up to the cage and carefully placed a blanket over it. And they gingerly picked it up, and they, they gently walked to the back of a pickup, and they just set it inside. And they said, okay, Mr. Berger, we're going to take this skunk, and we're going to take it, and we're going to drop it off at some, some location quite a distance away. And I'm like, okay, let me give you the address of my chairman of the deacons. Not really. But here's the thing. What I, what I learned when you've got a skunk that lives on your property, you, you've got a choice. You can either deal with it, which is hard, or you can say, you know, we'll get used to the smell eventually. And you know what you would? I, some of you are shaking your heads. You ever been over to the crazy cat lady's house? You know what I'm talking about? The lady that's got 30 cats? And you walk in and you're like, whoa, this place smells terrible. She doesn't even smell it because she's been living with it. And you'd get used to the skunk smell too. Problem is, no one else would. And they'd come over and they'd say, why don't you do something about this? And you'd say, do something about what? This is my life. Don't like it? Then go somewhere else. And that's how we are about the parts of our lives, the parts of our hearts that we haven't given over to God because we're so prideful and we've gotten used to it. We've gotten used to being that person who has a hair trigger temper that stomps on everybody's feelings. We've gotten used to being that person who's greedy and selfish or we've gotten used to being that person who's bitter and resentful or that person who thinks lustfully or that person who, who just says whatever's on their mind. 
and everybody's offended. We're hurting people, and we just say, hey, that's who I am. Why not deal with it now? Most of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and it's different for each one of us. I'm not saying only perfect people can become wise. If that were the case, none of us would have any hope. I'm saying only people who've admitted, I need help here, Lord, not just with wisdom and choices. I need for you to invade every portion of my heart and change me. Because God's not interested in being your fortune teller or your magic eight ball. He wants to be the one who changes you forever. He wants to be your Savior. Third thing. Become a student of wisdom. Become a student of wisdom. That third phrase is, in all your ways, submit to him. Most translations say, acknowledge him. What does that mean exactly? I learned acknowledge him, and I, I used to think that meant, okay, just admit there's a God. Well, guess what? Even the devil does that. But the word that's used there for acknowledge or submit in Hebrew is, an actual, is a word that actually means to fellowship with to spend time with, to share life with. God wants to share life with you and with me. So there's two ways we do this. Become a student of wisdom, number one, through studying His Word. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Guess what? We're the simple. (laughs) And God's going to make us wise, but only if we take time in His Word. And I know people who will read the book of Proverbs once a year. They'll, they'll, this is their habit. Every January, they'll pick it up, and, and it's 31 chapters, so they'll read January 1st, Proverbs 1, January 2nd, Proverbs 2, and they'll get it done in the first month of the year. That's a great habit. That's fine. And you may say, okay, today I'm going to start reading Proverbs. That's fantastic. Let me tell you something, though. Proverbs is a great and very practical book, but every single part of Scripture will make you wise. I mean, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all the way to Revelation, Gospels, letters, prophetic books, wisdom books, even all the begat sections, even those obscure parts of Leviticus and Exodus where they're talking about bizarre laws we don't follow anymore because they were only meant for the nation of Israel. All that stuff, if you spend time in it, will make you wise because when you're reading God's Word, you're spending time in His presence. And when you spend time in His presence, it makes you wise. And so if you don't have a habit of reading the Bible for yourself, if you've tried and failed or if you've never tried before, please come talk to me. Talk to one of the other ministers or talk to your life group leader because there are ways to read the Bible successfully, to get the Word into your heart daily, and that's what you need. But secondly, through the influence of wise believers, not just through studying His Word, but through spending time around people who display wisdom before you. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 20 of Proverbs says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, teenagers, you're going to hate that I'm going to say this, and especially going to hate it if your parents are in the room. But when my parents, when I was a teenager, my parents occasionally would say, I don't really like this person you're hanging around with. I don't think they're good for you. And I was a good kid, so I wasn't defiant, but I would always think to myself, well, you don't really understand. And you know what I learned? They actually kind of did. You know, like 99% of the time, they could take one look at my friends and go, okay, he's no good. And they were right. I'm not saying your parents are infallible. I'm saying 
It matters who you spend time with. And guess what? That's true for all of us. Guys, if you're a married man and you don't have at least one friend who's a better husband than you are that you hang out with intentionally because you want to learn from him, you're not doing yourself any favors. If you have trouble with with your finances and you know someone who knows how to take care of what God has given them and it has become generous and, and fruitful, spend time in their presence. Hang out with people who have wisdom that you don't have and learn from them. That is a gift. That is an opportunity wasted if you don't do it. Become a student of wisdom. Chase after it, like Solomon says. And then finally... You have to follow his path. The last, the last words of this verse are my favorite, some of my favorite words in the whole Bible. After you've admitted your wisdom isn't enough and, and gotten rid of what stands in the way and become a student of wisdom, you still have to follow his path. I mean, after all that he said, he says, he will make your path straight. And that's great. It's great to have a guide to lead you through life, but it doesn't do any good if you don't follow him if you don't obey him. Because I've got news for you, and this is something it took me a while to learn. As a young man, I really wanted to do God's will and live out his purpose for my life. And I really thought if I prayed really hard, he'd just reveal it all to me. And what I learned is God doesn't work that way most of the time. If you're waiting for that, that flash of insight, that Damascus Road moment where in a, in a second of time you wake up and you're like, okay, I know I'm here. It's probably not going to happen. Because God, if God worked that way, if he just showed up in your life and said, hey, here's your purpose, here's what I want you to do, now go, you'd never see God again. He'd be like, okay, just tell me what to do and leave me alone. And God doesn't want to leave you alone. He wants a relationship with you. So living out God's purpose, following his path, is composed of daily decisions every day. Little, seemingly minor decisions. Small steps of obedience lead you in the path of God. Small steps of obedience and conformity to His Word and His will. And you walk that direction as best you can over the course of a life, and you look back and you think, my goodness, I've sure gotten better at making decisions than I was back then. And you still got a ways to go, but at least you can say, I'm so much wiser than I used to be because I followed the path. You know, the, the tragedy about a story I started earlier about Solomon. Here's this young man who had, had been given this tremendous gift. God just dumped wisdom into his life. Don't you wish God would do that for you? And for a while, it, it bore fruit. People from other countries would come. Kings and queens would come and sit at his feet just to learn from him, just to observe his system of government, how efficient it was, how much sense it made. They would listen to him lecture. Not only that, he, he governed Israel so well, they went through a golden age. The nation of Israel has never since known the prosperity that Israel did under Solomon. And yet, there came a point in his life where he had the same wisdom up here, but he started making wrong choices anyway. Wisdom's no good if you don't follow it. Solomon started making bad decisions, left and right, he started chasing after his own desires for fame, for power, for sex, for wealth, for pleasure. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, that's another book that Solomon wrote. It's very different in tone. Very, very different. The most depressing book in the entire Bible. Because basically Ecclesiastes is a record, a diary of here's what it looks like to chase after joy and happiness and fulfillment without God. And here's where it leads. 
See, there's only one person who ever really played the game of life perfectly. Only one person who ever won the game of life. I bet you can guess who it is. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. Even though he was born with significantly fewer advantages than Solomon, not the son of a king, but the son of a carpenter, a man, a child so poor that his parents, you know, Israelite parents were supposed to bring a, a bull or a, or a lamb to sacrifice on the day their child was anointed and consecrated. They had to bring two doves, two birds. They were just poor. They weren't even married when Mary conceived. So much going against him, and yet Jesus consistently made the right choice, always chose the right path, always did what was right. The only person who at the end of his life could raise his arms in victory and say, I have won. My, my flesh, the world, and the devil all stand against me, and yet I conquered them all. And yet he didn't say that. And he didn't say, look at me, all of you. Follow my example if you want to be successful. If he would have said that, we'd all be lost because we don't need an example. We need a Savior. You know what Jesus said at the end of the game? He said, it is finished. Not just my life is finished, the game is finished, my work is finished. No, what he was saying was, get this, I've lived the perfect life, the life all of you, all of you needed to have lived but couldn't. And I'm going to trade my victory for your defeat. I'm going to make it so everybody who wants it can have this win, this accomplishment, this perfection, and I'll have your shame instead because somebody's got to pay. I will lose so you can win. And when he said, it is finished, what he meant was, now anyone who wants it can have it. My work is done, so now anyone who wants salvation and victory and transformation can have it. By the way, that's Christianity. Christianity is not the Ten Commandments or the Book of the Law. It's not a bunch of stories. Christianity is God becoming man so that you could follow and experience salvation through His death and resurrection. That's it. And here's the thing. When He said it is finished, He was opening the door for you to live a brand new kind of life. The really good news I can say to you is You've got a long time, uh, you know, you may have a long time yet to live. You may have a lot of bad decisions yet to make. And no matter what you do, it's not going to change the fact that Jesus died for you and his grace is for you if you want it. And he'll never reject you. But on the other hand, he died for you, gave you the opportunity to live a different kind of life, a life full of enough wisdom you can make choices that don't just exempt you from bad decisions and consequences, but even better than that, change the lives of everyone around you for the better. How about that? How about getting to the end of your life and looking up to the sky and saying, thank you, Lord, for leading me. Thank you for the way you blessed me and through me blessed others. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways Acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight.